Welcome to Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. I had initially decided I'd want to be a surgeon and then ended up uh, assisting with some bowel surgery. Uh, stood for two hours with somebody's bowels in a cloth in my hands and uh, it was after that I thought I'm not cut out to be a surgeon. Today I'm talking to Mars Skay, a consultant paediatric endocrinologist at the Royal Manchester Children's Hospital. Mars lives in Withington with her husband Andrew and her daughter Hadia. Thanks for joining us Mars. Thanks, Andy. Uh, it's a real privilege to be joining you today. Great. Well, really looking forward to chatting to you about your early life and your career, and particularly because you grew up in Malaysia, and then at 15 you went to school in Singapore. So tell us a little bit about the young Mars and, and why you made that move to school in Singapore. Yes, I grew, I grew up in Kuala Lumpur, which is the capital uh, of Malaysia. So it wasn't like I was in, you know, sort of paddy fields or <laughs> anything like that. And I was very fortunate to go to uh, a really good school. And in fact, most of uh, my primary school friends, looking back now, all um, did really well. So we, mm. we were from families uh, of parents who probably strived quite hard to get an education, who were then very keen that we got an education and, and went further than them. And then I moved on to secondary school when I sort of realised... so. Unfortunately, in Malaysia, due to the constitution, we have racial allocation for quotas on university places. Right. And uh, falling within the Indian cohort of nationals, or rather sort of mixed, um, mm -hmm. I had a limited, well, a reduced chance at getting into university. I, I was quite poorly as a child. And so I think quite early on, I decided... I wanted to pursue a career in medicine. And so in order to get a place, I knew I would ultimately have to leave Malaysia uh, in wow. order to pursue a further education. Mm. Uh, and that was what prompted me um, to apply for what was known then as the ASEAN Scholarship, right. uh, which was being... Uh, sponsored by the Singapore government and looking back now it was probably their surreptitious sort of creaming of the crop from most of the ASEAN countries to get mm. them across to Singapore mm. to to study for free uh, and then obviously most people if they ended up doing higher education in Singapore would get mm. bonded and then you'd have to serve yeah. uh, the Singaporean government for a period of time. Um, right. So that's what moved me um, to Singapore at 15. Wow, gosh. So you had a quite a sort of clear sense of what you wanted to do with your life and, and the direction of travel, even at that age. Yeah, I think, well, uh, the backstory mm. to it is mm. that um, I was, uh, I had quite a, a traumatic childhood. Um, mm. My mum became a, a single parent quite early on, um, uh, when I was four, 
and so she had to support me mm. and as a result really couldn't uh, afford the medicine that I needed um, mm. and you know at the time getting uh, medical help was limited you know you did have government hospitals but probably not the best medic medical help and there was a lovely private pediatrician who used to basically charge her her rich patients uh, but gave me free medication and it was it, it was when I discovered this that I thought gosh I could make a difference to other people and it and that was what I think prompted me uh, very yeah. early on that I wanted to be a doctor. Isn't that amazing that somebody can have such an impact on somebody's life at that age by sort of showing um, kindness? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So then um, to pursue the medicine, um, mm -hmm. you then moved from Singapore to Sheffield, came, came to the UK. So tell us yeah. about that. That was another big move for you. <laughs> So it, it was interesting because I um, I had to be interviewed at 15 for my ASEAN scholarship. And at the interview, they asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, um, I'd really like to be a doctor. And at the interview, I remember this very clearly at the age of 15. My mum was sat there next to me at this interview because you were so young that a parent mm. had to accompany you into the interview. And they said, you, you do realise that uh, you will never get into medicine in Singapore. Now, the reason for that was because uh, the Singaporean government uh, allocated quotas for gender. So wow. in medicine, because the cost to uh, subsidise the course was so high, um, only 20% of places went to girls and 80% right. went to boys. And because I was Malaysian and not Singaporean, they knew for definite I would never get a place at medical school wow. in Singapore. Mm. So they said, you need to you, you need to bear this in mind. And of course, at 15, you're so idealistic. <laughs> um, and I went, oh, well, no problem. I'll just go abroad. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember my mum told me at the time she was absolutely sat in the chair going, oh, my goodness, what is this girl saying? Um, but I, I, you know, I, I was so clear in my head that's what I wanted to do. That every, you know, I, I knew that Singapore was just a stepping stone. So I, I won my first scholarship to do my O levels, and then I, I won a second scholarship to do my A levels at Singapore. Mm. And then obviously came to the end of that and was uh, in dire straits because by this point mm. I was 18 and realised the cost of what it yes. would take for me to study medicine mm. in, in the UK or Ireland. And obviously we didn't have the money. Mm. So we, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, some people say it's fate. I am a, a strong believer in, in um, God. Um, mm. And um, so with a lot of uh, investment in prayer um, and help <laughs> from upstairs, at the last minute, there was the, the sort of chair of a trust fund who had, she was a friend of my aunt um, and had realised that I'd basically, despite the odds, continued to produce really good results for right. my O levels and A levels. And she, when she realised that I would never achieve the career that I wanted to do, she came across and she said, we will fund you for your university fees wow. 
on the basis that at the end of that, you pay us back as you work, as you become a professional, yes. and you pay us back so that we can fund another student to, to go to university. Yeah. And at the time, um, I remember uh, sending in the um, the UCA application, as it was called in yes, those days, and I, I went to the British Council and said, you know, could I have an UCA form, please? Um, and the lady said, you do realise it's clearing. Um, you will never get a place in medicine. And I went, well, just give it to me anyway. So having not looked at any university prospectus or anything, I randomly put down four universities, which was, um, Ed, uh, you know, I, I was sensible. I knew that there was no chance of getting into Oxford and Cambridge. So I put down Edinburgh, Newcastle, Sheffield, um, and what, I think it was Birmingham or something. Mm. Um, and of course, got these letters back saying, uh, we are in clearing, but we'd like to offer you um, interviews mm. uh, if you can come on this date to Newcastle, this date to Edinburgh and this date to Birmingham. Right. But of course, <laughs> um, we didn't even have money to pay for my flight mm -mm. to the UK. Um, so I, I sort of said to my mum, uh, and, you know, again, this idealistic 18 year old, um, I said, you know what, mum, if I am meant to do medicine, they will come to Malaysia and interview me. <laughs> and my mother was like, oh my goodness, where does this girl get these ideas from? And of course, um, a week later, we got this phone call from Sheffield mm. saying, um, we're pioneering this new twinning program mm. and we're coming to Kuala Lumpur to interview students for places at Sheffield University. Right. Would your daughter like to come along for an interview for medicine? Yes. And and so wow. I, um, at the time, was working as a, a governess in Singapore to earn, you know, save mm. up some money. Uh, and so I hopped on a plane straight back to Kuala Lumpur and um, went to the interview. And that was the, the beginning of my UK journey. Wow, gosh. So, th so you then came to um, Sheffield and how did you cope with the sort of culture shock and the weather shock and the food shock? <laughs> I have to say that was hard. Uh, really? The first yes. year at university in halls of residence, um, I, you know, I think medics are well known for being um, the alkies of university. <laughs> you know, they're always there. Um, it, it was a huge cultural shock. And, yes. and the weather, you know, coming from uh, equatorial weather yeah. into um, sort of um, Yorkshire winter yeah. um, was uh, quite a shock to the system. Um, so I, I became, um, well, I, I was in halls of residence and um, I was very fortunate, actually, uh, that as I went up the uh, lift to my room on the first day mm -hmm. to meet a very good friend of mine, uh, um, who's sadly not with us anymore, Louise Tebeth, mm -hmm. who had just been out to Africa on her gap year. Right. So Louise was this, um, you know, 18-year-old um, who, mm -hmm. uh, well, 19-year-old by this point, because um, she'd had a gap year. Um, and Louise was like, oh, I know all about culture. <laughs> right. <laughs> into Africa. <laughs> and she took it upon herself to befriend me. And of course, she was uh, in, in medicine as well. Yeah. Uh, and there were a number of um, other, uh, you know, um, 
friends who are still, uh, you know, very, very good friends of mine, um, who took it upon themselves to look after me as this young Malaysian uh, who knew nothing about the UK. (laughs) I didn't have the the finance to go home at uh, June holidays. So what was absolutely lovely was that all these girls would take me into their homes during the school. The, the university holidays gosh can you when you look back at that university time in Sheffield were, were there any particular sort of instances that you remember that particularly sort of helped shape you during that time I think it, it certainly broadened my horizons because I realized that if I needed to survive I needed to embrace other cultures I, I needed right. to embrace a slightly different lifestyle um Mm. and i needed to you know i'd come from quite a sheltered upbringing um and i had to realize that i had to fend for myself um in all kinds of settings particularly when you got to your fourth and fifth year because you were doing clinicals um so you were you were not even with your friends you were you sort of strewn out to some you know um back of nowhere hospital Mm. um and (laughs) you know you you kind of had to fend for yourself with whoever you were partnered up with so it it was interesting but i think it really developed it sort of developed grit yes well it sounded like you had real determination and sort of vision of what you wanted to do and then you got grit from sheffield (laughs) in terms of survival and then you came to manchester um and uh and did your high medical training in pediatrics and and why manchester was was the people you knew here or was it the best place or the opportunities that opened up i decided in my head that i either wanted to do geriatrics or i wanted to do pediatrics (laughs) so two two ends of the spectrum (laughs) really um I I'd initially at medical school uh, decided I'd want to be a surgeon and then um, ended up uh, assisting with some bowel surgery, uh, stood for two hours with somebody's bowels in a cloth in my hands. Um, and uh, it was after that um, I thought I'm not cut out to be a surgeon. <laughs> um, so I'd, I'd sort of shortlisted down to geriatrics and paediatrics and um, it was in my so I, I actually did my first year my pre houseman training at Sheffield uh, at the Hallamshire Hospital. I was very fortunate I got a good placement, but because I knew I wanted to do paediatrics, I opted to do um, everything that was non paediatric related because I thought this might be my last chance right. seeing adult people. Yes. Um, yes. Not not seeing adult, but you know, <laughs> as patients. Um, that put me in really good stead um, because, you know, I still draw on those experiences a lot. Um, but the the problem was what nobody did. I never, you know, in those days you didn't have careers advice. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, if I'd gone to a careers advisor, they would have said, whatever you do, make sure you include pediatrics in your pre-houseman core because that's what will get you selected into paediatric higher training so I'd kind of disadvantaged myself um, by doing that Um, and so all the other people who had done paediatrics in in their sort of houseman year as part of their rotation ended up getting all the sort of pre-planned rotations in Nottingham and Sheffield because most people went to Nottingham Um, and I ended up applying basically anywhere and the one place I decided I was definitely not coming to was Manchester 
And of course, um, finally, the Manchester applications came out because they were the one of the last to advertise. And I kind of thought, oh, do I put it in? Do I put it in? And I, and I put it in. And I remember but I was absolutely shattered because I'd worked 48 hours. I'd come to this interview not very prepared. Um, and then at the end of it, got on the train and cried all the way home because I thought there was no chance I was going to get put into a rotation in Manchester with all these people with higher degrees. And by some miracle... I was chosen as the second person to get on a rotation to Manchester. So that, so then you you appointed as a consultant in Manchester University Foundation Trust. Yeah. Um, how did you feel, sort of having that extra step of responsibility? You know, walking through the hospital doors as a consultant. So the bit the bit I missed out, Andy, was that um, I did my paediatric training and yeah. got to my fourth year of training as a paediatrician. And then decided I wanted to be an endocrinologist. So for those who are listening who don't know what endocrinology is, what's the, uh, so what's that's the short the, answer um, to that? Treatment of hormones. So it's all right. the disorders with, uh, yes. of hormones in children. Um, and um, so I realised I had to apply for the grid um, and went to the interview. But they t- at this point told me I was too far on in my training. But I was very fortunate because there was an endocrinologist called Dr. Catherine Hall at the time who just decided I really wanted to do endocrinology. And she decided to take me under her wing and said, I will train you outside of the grid. And uh, I was in my last year of my paediatric training and um, Catherine uh, managed to get some national funding to put together um, a, a sort of clinical research post mm. um, and um, I interviewed for that and got that and that's how I then started training in paediatric endocrinology sort of retrospectively yeah. um, so getting a job at the time was really quite a challenge mm. um, and so my my poor husband uh, knowing that we would probably have to leave Manchester because there were no jobs coming up in Manchester at the time as a consultant, um, he retrained in law um, oh, because yes. <laughs> uh, he at the time was a specialist ballistics expert uh, and there were only two places he could work in, which was Manchester or London. Uh, so that's how Andrew um, ended up doing a law conversion course. Wow. It was to try and facilitate me getting a job somewhere else in the country. And then miraculously, rather tragically, but miraculously, um, Catherine very sadly um, died. Um, Mm. And uh, that gap created um, two jobs in Manchester. And I interviewed for one of those and Mm. was appointed. Mm. So I came into the job, to be honest, extremely grateful um, that I'd been appointed. Um, But then extremely nervous because you as a consultant you realize the buck stops with you um you know uh if you if you have a legal lawsuit (laughs) you're the first person who's gonna get called (laughs) and you've got a husband Um, training in law as well so maybe that's gonna help (laughs) (laughs) so um i embraced it and was very grateful um but yeah it was a a whole different ball game once you were a consultant Mm. you don't have somebody else to ask you go through you know six years of your training where you always are able to ask for advice and then you get to this point where suddenly you are the person giving the advice um and that's quite scary but you know how how do you handle that sort of um pressure and responsibility i think um you 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 grow into it 
So, so you're now the lead for childhood obesity and disorders of sexual differentiation. Um, what's motivated you to specialise in these particular areas? So what happened was um, Catherine had started up a, a study um, looking at the use of a particular drug in childhood obesity. Mm -hmm. And so Manchester being the, the lead site um, acquired all these research patients um, who had obesity that we suddenly realised because the, the study came to an end. But we had all these children who were obese um, mm. and we didn't really know what to do with them. Mm. I thought somebody had to help them. Somebody, yeah. you know, we couldn't just discharge these children into nowhere land mm -mm. Um, mm -mm. Uh, without advice. Um, and so I think from there, um, I started knocking on doors. So I ended up knocking on the doors of Manchester City Council um, and various other people saying, what can we do about this? Mm. Um, how can we work collaboratively? Because I've got a problem where I'm just limited as a medical practitioner. I can tell people they need to do exercise, but where do they go to get their exercise? Um, and so we realised... Uh, you know, very early on that we needed to work um, collaboratively. And fortunately for me, um, the deputy chief executive of Manchester um, University Foundation Trust <laughs> um, sort of had this as one of her hobby horses. Um, and so um, Jill Heaton decided that she would work towards having a collaborative approach with me being one of the senior medical advisors on wow. how we developed a Manchester-wide approach to childhood obesity. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that's how that, that took off. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it sounds that at this point you're sort of, you've been focused on, on what you felt was the right thing to do, but then you've also had this sort of broadening of your perspective out into the value of collaboration, mm -hmm. not just within the hospital, but even more widely into the, the city council and, and so on. Yeah. How did you how did you find that sort of stepping outside the, the hospital to go and talk to, you know, others in other organisations and structures and things? Um, again, I think a bit of that sort of idealistic 80-year-old <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of took me out of the hospital doors. Um, you know, I was so um, naive, really, uh, at the time about funding and budgets and, you know, council budgetary cuts and you know you you just sort of went this is what i want this is what i'd like you to do for me and then sort of get told you know you're absolutely nuts um so you know it, it was a bit of that um but i think what that did was it, it brought the conversation to a table uh and um it also made people understand that um so I remember going to um, one of the party conferences. I remember I was invited to uh, sort of uh, to a roundtable for one of the um, sort of party conferences. I'll not mm. mention which party that was, um, political party conferences. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, it, what shocked me at this roundtable was people's perceptions on the subject. You know, people are outrightly saying things like, well, if, you know, it's all their fault, that's why they're obese, you know, yeah. or, um, you know, they should just buy better food. And I, yeah, and I was there going, but you don't understand, childhood obesity is directly linked and it correlates perfectly with deprivation. 
you know so how unless we do something about the cost of food or healthy food unless we provide educational packages then how how do we edit so you know it, it took me yeah even to sort of political party level you know trying to to bring some uh, some sort of conversation that was uh valuable yeah. but but also conversation that was slightly informed yes. people are so and still so misinformed about the subject mm-hmm. yeah. and so do you, do you still engage in those conversations yes yeah, so um so yes i i spoke um, only at the start of it we had some grand plans at the start of the year <laughs> which have been completely thwarted by covid um but yeah manchester city council were about to launch a a, a portal um for for this um yeah. so that people could go you know it's a go-to place but also we were we were really trying to work collaboratively around it so so what do you sort of particularly enjoy about your work now and what do you find most rewarding so about three and a half years ago i actually took on being the, the sort of head of department in manchester mm-hmm. um and that was uh, that brought new new life almost uh, yes. to to my career because it uh, I had to then start wearing a management hat mm. and of course you, you know you never get taught management at medical school it was a baptism of fire let's yeah. put it that way mm-hmm. uh, suddenly realizing you had to balance the budget for an entire department you had to find means of generating income I had to sort of learn uh, on the go yes. um, and um, but one thing I uh, decided was that I was going to be a different head of department. So I think it was within the first month of me um, being head of department, I decided we would have to have a mission statement for our department. Um, And I wanted a mission statement that would run from every clinician down to every admin clerk that Mm -hmm. we had. Mm. Um, And that really, looking back, it's funny because only this week, one of our um, secretaries said, I've just provided feedback on you. And the thing I reflect on is your mission statement for this department, because um, I I sort of developed an acronym for what we were to be, which was to be excellent. I also... um, set our target as becoming the largest, most cohesive paediatric endocrinology department in the country. And we mm-hmm. did achieve that um, under uh, my wing. And um, the other thing that really made the difference was I set two red lines for our department. One was that we would never have any uh, unavoidable deaths. And the second red line was that we would never have a member of the team who had uh, health or mental health issues ignored. Um, And that um, bizarrely was the thing that really pulled the team together um, uh, and made a difference. And and we've grown um, uh, in Manchester to to become a really very cohesive team. And I'm I'm really quite proud of that. Good. So so looking back, you know, on that, that little... Mars, who was poorly um, in Malaysia, what would be your sort of one bit of advice to her, knowing what you know now, do you think? I think the thing I would have said, you know, I never, ever thought I'd ever get to where um, no. I, I, I am today, a different country, uh, you know, a, a, a career um, that of choice, 
Um, mm-hmm. So I've, I've been very blessed that way. Um, but um, I, I would have said whatever it was, you know, no matter the hardship, no matter the hurdle, just mm-hmm. keep going because you'll get there. Yes. Um, and I think it's sad because lots of people, I think, give up. You know, they give up the dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, it, it's important that if you have a dream that you do pursue it to nth degree mm-hmm. um, because if you do get to the, the dream, um, then you, you, you continue to grow and you continue to, to give into it because it's what you enjoy doing. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's really good and some really great advice and uh, such a powerful motivation as well. So, thanks so much, Mars, for your time. Really enjoyed chatting to you. Thanks. Thank you.